In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. We can be right with God but living totally defeated. We can be looking straight down at the dirt. When we have been uh, made right with the Lord, we're still not walking in faith and joy. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we We salute salute you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, and I'm here with my partner in crime. Dale Culver. How you doing, my man? I'm doing great. Hey, man, I'm really excited about today's episode. Uh, we've got a guy on the show who's a dynamic communicator, but what really impressed me just initially was he has a Facebook page called Note to Leaders with over 100,000 followers. And nice. that's really exciting. I'm excited to hear from this guy. But before we get into our interview with Scott, do you want to have a man word for me today? I do. You could guess. Come on, baby. Leadership. Oh, I'm pretty sure you've done that one. I don't know. What, what is it? Influence. Oh. And I got a kind of a chip on my shoulder about this one. As men, we have great influence sometimes on a lot of people. And so what are we going to do with that? And thinking about the choices that we make, how that is going to impact people is important. Why do you have a chip on your shoulder? Because Yeah, because... There have been so many men oh, who have gosh. great leadership. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. They've had great influence over people, and yeah. they have fallen by bad choices that they've made, and it just it hurts a yeah. lot of people. So um, we have influence, uh, and think about that as you lead your family and in your community. Yeah, men have so they just do not realize the influence they have. And so, hey, I'm excited to bring our guest on the show today, Scott Hagen. Scott is 57 years old. He's been married to his wife, Karen, for 38 years, lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Scott is the president of North Central University. He's a popular leadership voice on social media, as I shared earlier. He authors Note to Leaders on Facebook. They have 100,000 followers, actually 100,001, because I followed him yesterday. Scott's been speaking professionally for over 25 years about leadership and relationships. He's written and spoken and helped scores and scores, hundreds and thousands of people, uh, organizations, teams, and individuals. He's the author of six books, including our book for today, his newest book, The Language of Influence and Personal Power. So, Scott, welcome to the show, man. I'm super excited to have you on today. 
Man, Jim and Dale, blessed uh, to be with you guys, and especially some Oregonians, transplants yeah. out there. But my, I, I mentioned my boy played football in college for Cal, so we would go up to Corvallis and Eugene, you know, rotate every year. A lot of joys in Corvallis, a lot of pain in Eugene. That's just oh, how I yeah. kind of organize, yeah. organize my heart about Oregon. <laughs> yep, University of Oregon fans are very happy these days. But Oregon State's coming back. They're coming. So now what year did your boy play football? So he played tight end from uh, 09 to 13 uh, for Cal. Jeff Tedford was his coach. And then he he was doing good starter for two years, H-back, caught a pass. We were playing at Ohio State, caught a pass in the fourth quarter. Guy hit him in the knee, violently broke his leg back in the oh. knee. 90 degrees laid his calf on the ground backwards. And um, – it, it obviously ended his career, so it ended at the horseshoe in Columbus. So, not really a huge Buckeye aficionado, to be honest. Yeah, I bet. All I bet. Just, but you know, it's, it is fascinating. I don't mean to jump in and be so serious about it, but it's, you know, when when that's taken away from a young man and from a father because he was heading the NFL. Uh, you know, I was been about two weeks going, okay, what else? What else? Something different? Something else? Something different? I remember praying to the Lord, and the Lord said, "What are you doing?" He says, "Your son loves me. You love me." He said, if I, if I take something away, I don't do something else. I always do something more. Mm. Just watch. And so even though the football playing it, he's coached for five years in college. He's an FCA director. He's oh, a leader awesome. of men. And actually seeing your son coach was cooler than watching him play in the Pac-12. It, it, it's hard to explain when your son becomes a leader of men what that does for a dad's heart. Mm. Oh, man. Yeah, I've got a son playing college football right now. Yeah, he's my youngest boy, and uh, it's just fun. And I'll tell you what, I think the H-back position on offense is one of the greatest positions ever because it just eliminates the fullback, and it puts a receiving type of kid in a blocking-slash-receiving situation, and it forces the linebackers to adjust. It's a beautiful, beautiful position. I love that position, especially when you motion that guy. So what, how, how tall is your son? Is he? Uh, he's a big kid. He's uh, just under 6'6". Six, six. He was 6'5 and 3 quarters. Uh, 250. He went in as a wide receiver, but he was 6'4", 205 as a freshman at Cal. Grew to 6'5 and a half. And uh, Jeff Tedford just said, you're getting big, you're fast, yeah, and you're getting thick. We're going to put another 30 pounds on you by design now, and we're going to turn you into a tight end. Yeah, the, it worked out great for him. Yeah, the height, if they get the height, they can put the weight on. The weight's not a problem. Yeah. They put the height on them. So, uh, yeah, that's really cool. But hey, I want to talk to you about your book, The Language of Influence and Personal Power. Uh, this is, uh, when I opened the book, it shocked me. I read about 40 to 50 books a year, and I was really blessed with how easy a read it was and shocked with the format. Can you explain the reason behind the format? Yeah, you know, about half your life is a result of strategy, and the other half of your life you never see coming. <laughs> so this, this I never saw this coming. So I've published six books, kind of normal, normal ways of writing books. <clears throat> so one Sunday I was speaking when I was a pastor several, about four or five years ago. A guy said, hey, can I use that tomorrow? What you said in my manager's meeting, I, I manage a big municipality energy company here. I want to use that for my manager. So on Facebook that night, we started. He said, how'd you say that? So I sent him a little note back, and he said, that's it. Other people jumped in. And all of a sudden, somebody goes, you need to put these sayings uh, in a book. And so it, it ha all happened by accident. So I didn't know how to take little short sayings and turn it into a book until one day I saw this book of Mother Teresa's Prayers. Ah. And her book was a published book, and on the page was maybe 10 words. And I go, I think that's how I could do this. So uh, I self-published first, 
and it sold like 17,000 copies on Amazon, self-published in a wow. year. The, the New York Yankees were using it. The VP of Apple, uh, Dan Riccio, was using the book for his execs, and it just kind of made it to the Pentagon. And then uh, Penguin Random House uh, Books, uh, one of their reps called me last summer and said, is this your book? And he, he said, yeah, he goes, we don't publish published books, but he, they bought it, and they relaunched it as a corporate gift book, wow. redesigned it. And it's just it's in the whole corporate gift book world uh, for companies. So it's been remarkable uh, how it's gone this year. Wow, that's really cool. So now the quotes in the book, you don't source the quotes. So I'm assuming you're you're the source of the quotes. Yeah, I, I wrote them. Oh, wow. That was really cool. So what we, what we do, Scott, on the show is we start with our rapid fire round. <clears throat> but yeah. what I'm going to do today is I'm going to call it the sniper round because we're going to take 30 minutes instead of the normal five and talk about seven or not to nine of the quotes that I thought had a paradox to them. And I'm going to ask you to, so I'm going to, I'm not going to read the full quote. I'm just going to give you the paradox and I want you to explain what you meant by that. Does that sound okay? Okay. So so here we go. And I'm just going to, it'll be a couple words and I'm hoping that you can remember the quote. If not, we'll just discuss the the phrase. So the, the first paradox of the first, uh, this versus that is excess versus success. Yeah. Um, it's, it's success is not determined by excess. It's moderation. And so we tend to think that leadership is a life of this linear upward trajectory that every day and every year of a successful person's life is marked by more. Mm. And maturity is about less. It's not about more. And it's about narrowing your life. And really the older we get, the key to life is editorial, not creativity, and being able to live a life of moderation, not excess. And really, the people we respect that are older, that have gone the distance, that have been high achievers earlier in midlife, and they're still filled with joy and meaning as older men, um, are people who've mastered uh, moderation instead of indulgence. Well, the other thing I took away from that quote was so much of our time as leaders is spent communicating numbers and metrics to get our people to follow a vision. And I think that can create a people that is a mile wide and an inch deep. And, and what I re- read in that quote is, let's build a big people instead of a big group of people. Yeah, and it's the natural progression of life. You look yeah. in the Bible, so- Solomon, when he was young, wrote the Song of Solomon because life's all about pleasure. Yeah, The bulk in the heart of Solomon's life, he edited and wrote Proverbs because life's all about performance, productivity. Mm. But the most important book Solomon wrote was Ecclesiastes. He, he reached the, the highest level of success, which is perspective. Yes. But you got to pass through pleasure and productivity to get to perspective. And once you reach perspective, it really is the pinnacle of meaning uh, and leadership. You're a father, you're a grandfather, you're able to give quick, you're able to see things quickly and uh, say things uh, precisely uh, when you live in a place of perspective. That is so good. I've never thought of it that way. The phases, I know I'm a hunter and in hunting, there are phases of a hunter's life and they end with basically what you just said here. So we start off with pleasure, which is kill everything. (laughs) Then we end up with perspective or uh, productive, which is kill as many things as you can (laughs) or kill better. Because yeah. in early phases, we, we just kill, kill, kill. And then as we mature, we kill bigger trophies. But then we get to a point in our life where we want to give back and watch other people have success, which is this perspective, right? 
Uh, and I really, yeah. that's really, really good. I, I really appreciate that. So here we go. Ne- the next one is this living the part versus playing the part. Yeah. Um, so I've often characterized modern leadership like theater or that we're, um, that it's a caricature. Yes. Not a, a character, uh, not character, but caricature. Mm-hmm. And we are forced into this early in this brutal, uh, demanding world to be first and foremost uh, so that we have a sense of meaning. And it's really the shift in my lifetime, uh, Jim and Dale, has been the shift from seed to speed. Mm. So when, when I was younger, I realized it took the same time to grow an apple today as it did in the day of Jesus. You can't, you can't rush seed. What we've done, though, is we have we've placed the greater currency on speed, which is just really most of it's monopoly money. It's just yeah. I've got to be first and I've got to be foremost. And uh, your success is going to rob my potential. So I have to block your influence or I've got to be faster to everything in order for people to recognize me. And, and it's just brutal life. So what we do is we start play acting yeah. and performing uh, beyond our years of depth and meaning. And the problem is, is that most of the people we're performing in front of are not demanding of us depth anymore. Mm. We only have to be all, if we're just one notch above the lowest common denominator, we could be a leader in this society. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're not required to be great in most sectors. So there's really got to be this internal thing inside a person and the, the accountability to, to seize and successful mentors that are watching us and we're watching them. They're watching us, we're watching them. And in that is the call to excellence in every area of your life, not just the stuff you're interested in. Which is the character component. We put out this picture of who we are instead of who we really are. One of your quotes towards the end of the book is simply this. The moral of the story is simple. Don't be immoral. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which goes along with that. And another thing that goes along with what you just said was, as a and talking about leadership here, and we're talking to men who are we're calling them to step up and lead their families, lead their yeah. communities, to to say, God, put me on display for you, and then I'll put you on display. That's what we're asking our guys to do. And and, and you have another paradox here that I want to address. It kind of goes along with the caricature versus character, living the part versus playing the part, and it's this: going first versus being first. Being first. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I know it's philosophical, it's nuanced, but I think it really uh, is laser focused on the difference between ego and selflessness. So um, men are trying to uh, be first. I want to always uh, be more successful. I want to be recognized first. I want to finish first. I want to sell more, be more. And the competition becomes toxic when you have to succeed at the expense of someone else. Yes. you want to be the top salesperson where you work. You want to be the best of the best, but never at the expense of somebody else. Um, there's a way to be successful without deflourishing the person next to you. So being first cannot be the goal. But what a man has to do, he has to go first. So here's the person who says, I will be the leader and be the example. I will be the first one to sign up, to sacrifice, to show up, to speak up. Um, I'll be the one, I'm not going to wait for my wife to go first. I'm not going to wait for the other person to go first. I'll go first without 
the desperate need to be first when it's all said and done. Well, and that goes along with another quote in your book. I should probably explain this to our listeners. Your book is 340, how many? 316. 316 quotes. In about life and leading. Yeah, in about 300 pages. So it's basically one to three quotes a page. And so we're pulling out quotes from this book. And one of the quotes that really affected me that I wrote down as a, as a quote to talk to you about is what you just said. And the quote is this, criticizing someone is how an underachiever compliments himself. Yeah. Right. And that's, and that's, if I have to, if I go, if I become first because I've bad mouthed you or supplanted you, is that, is that something that speaks to my character? Well, I guess it does. Yeah. And it's really, again, driven by the, the false concept that, God has given a limited supply of success. So imagine if there's two boats uh, that are floating in the San Francisco Harbor and one sailboat's going nowhere, bobbing up and down. Another sailboat goes by full speed. Imagine the little boat going nowhere, yelling at the other boat, hey, stop stealing my wind. The other boat would say, put your sail up, dummy. There's plenty of wind in the harbor to sail more than one ship. And there's plenty of strength in God's kingdom to flourish every man, every life, every church, every gift, every dream. That's not in limited supply. But if I believe that your success is robbing my potential, I now mutate into this odd way of doing life. I'll block influence. I will criticize people because I'm always trying to diminish people down to where I'm kind of dwelling instead Mm -hmm, of thriving. mm -hmm. Because again, Uh, I believe your success is going to rob my potential. Sacred leaders, real men do not believe that. Um, That's why they resource, introduce, make connections and celebrate other men because there's plenty of wind in the harbor to sail every ship. Oh, that's good. It's like the candle never stops lighting one candle to the next. Well, years ago, John Maxwell said something I thought was really interesting and appropriate to what you're saying right now. He said, small people talk about other people. Average people talk about things and stuff. Great people talk about ideas. And that's what you're saying. You're saying, hey, let's 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 get out in front, but let's get under and push people up and, and encourage them forward. So so here's one that really again I'm asking you questions on on quotes that affected me because on some level I'm working through them, right? And this one here, I had to laugh when I read it uh, because it really does address me personally. Pay attention versus seek attention. Again, a fundamental flaw, especially in modern leadership theory. So let's take a Bible example. <clears throat> king Nebuchadnezzar is probably five foot tall. Who knows? You know, <laughs> Babylonian king. But he builds an image that's 90 feet tall. And when the people come to Babylon, he sends the people to the image of himself rather than the reality of who he is. Oh, because he is, and that's part of the crimes against humanity that social media has committed, yes. is that we're, we're able through social media to create imagery of ourselves far greater than the reality. I always tell people when they visit your church or your college or whatever, let the experience exceed the rumor. Ah, I, that's a quote in your book. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> it, they kind of pour out something. I know, I understand. But, <laughs> but we tend to, like Nebuchadnezzar, we're seeking attention instead of paying attention. And so we feel a depression if we're not noticed, if we're not named. Uh, And these are all little uh, triggers inside the heart that needs to uh, readjust 
and be redeemed to say, okay, I need to do more paying of, a paying of attention than the seeking of attention. Um, and if you take that approach when you enter a room, I'm going to pay attention, not seek attention. It's just a little personal coach up as a man. Yeah. So when I'm about to enter a room, it helps my mood. It helps my thinking. Okay, Scott, you're walking in this room. Uh, you got to pay attention, not seek attention. Well, speaking of that, uh, one of your I heard I heard somebody one time say, "Walk slowly through the crowd." And then you said in your book, one of your quotes that I highlighted today because I love it, and I want you to embellish from on what you just said is, "How you enter the room matters." Matters. So I mean, absolutely. Yeah. You, you know that that sense of uh, first impression. Uh, you know, I have a couple personal rules: be the fourth person to speak in a meeting. Oh. Don't be the first or the second. Um, so that you uh, can personify listening. Mm. And then the other thing is is being able uh, to stay interested in a person instead of moving on to a more interesting person. So what we tend uh, to do when we're talking to people, I, I was in a, a room recently. It was a green room. This is a conference, about 10 of us. And I'm talking to a young leader who wants to, knows me and he wanted to spend time with me. But I'm there to meet Tim Tebow because Tim Tebow is going to be walking in the room. So I'm, talk, I'm, I'm talking to this young guy, and I teach this principle. And Tim Tebow walked in, and I felt myself moving on instantly to a more interesting person. And so they have more power, more leverage. You're, they're more interesting, so I'm really done with you. Um, and so one thing about uh, is key. I think it's the first quote in the book is that uh, um, poor leaders – uh, um, our good leaders notice everyone in the room. Poor leaders only notice those who notice them. Yes. And so what happened is Tebow walks in the room and I felt myself pulling away from this young guy, but little did I know he was trying to end the conversation with me because he wanted to go talk to Tebow. <laughs> so we were doing it to each other. Say, hey, you know what? Let's both go talk to him because he's more interesting than both of us. And so we kind of laughed about it. But honestly, how, and especially if you're in a role of power, um, because people can tell within five seconds if their relationship with you has a future. So uh, when you when you hold power, I don't care whether you're the usher on the right side of the church uh, sanctuary, you hold a position, you're a gatekeeper. Somebody has to go through you at some level to get to where they want to go. And the more power you have, you know, as a pastor, now I'm a university president, so I make people nervous when I when they meet me, no matter what I've done. I just hold that social title. So warmth is critical to everything. When I'm, when I'm warm to somebody in five seconds, it tells them the relationship has a future. If I'm cold to them, if I enter the room cold, if I enter the room looking over people, through people, and aloof, it tells that room that they have no future relationship with me. And then what uh -huh. happens is people... Uh, become different in the presence of somebody that they have no future with. They start boasting or they become nervous. Just a very fast, fast story. I'm 20 years old, very famous communicator was in uh, San Jose. I got on his lunch calendar. I couldn't believe it. I had my list of questions once in a lifetime. As we sat down at the Prune Yard Towers there in San Jose, um, he glanced at his watch and I'll never forget it because I knew I was bugging him oh. before we started. And when, when, when I realized I was bugging him, my heart shrunk. I got nervous. My mouth got dry. I started talking about myself. I couldn't organize my thinking. I don't want to have that effect on people at this stage of my life. 
the key to leadership is putting people at ease. It's making the uh, outsider feel like an insider as fast as possible. And warmth is key when you enter a room. Which goes to another paradox I want to throw at you, which is warmth versus words. And I think you addressed that. Do you have any more to say on that? No, just that people remember your warmth long after they remember your, your words. They remember how you made them feel. They remember the mood that they were in. When they, now, even if you're correcting, I and mean, we all have jobs. I, I have to let people go. I have to correct people. But, but you have to always leave the person with hope, even after a correction or after a, a difficult conversation. You're always leaving people with some semblance of an olive branch or a gesture or comment of warmth. They may not take it, they may not respond to it, but you put it as the leader on the table that there's a future to our relationship, even though I just terminated you um, um, in some way. So that the warmth that they feel from you lasts much longer than the words that you tell them. Well, you know, it's interesting because in your book, you've mentioned this at least a half a dozen times now, and uh, I don't think I read it in the book. And you're, you, you keep talking about the future of the relationship. Will you expand on that? Um, a- absolutely. I don't think any organization, it, it, and let's just bring it into the family. Oh. Um, you know, let's talk about marriage and our kids for just a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I asked my kids, all four are married now. And, you know, our children can humble us at any given moment of any given day. So, my four kids have each married well. We got nine grandkids, but we're in that stage of life. Three of them are in their 30s. One's 28. They all got small kids. I asked each of my kids this question. How many moments of your childhood did you spend worry, worrying if dad loved mom? Oh, wow. Um, they go, what? That's a ridiculous uh, conversation. Uh, question. I said, no. And how much time did you spend wondering if dad loved mom? They go, never one second of our life. I said, so that means you spent your entire childhood using all of your energy toward development, not toward preservation, not mitigating fear. Because when a child lays in bed at night and they fear if dad loves mom or if he's going to abandon mom or they'll be abandoned. And when kids hear their father yell at their mother, they know that abandonment is next. Oh, wow. And so what happens is now a bunch of their God-given energy that is in there to be used for development of their life is now uh, driven over towards self-preservation to mitigate fear. So um, I grew up in a very tumultuous childhood, uh, chaos in our family. I did not want to give my children my childhood. Mm. So when my children who are grown told me that they wanted when the child that you did not want to have your childhood tells you that they want their child to have their childhood and i'm not trying to be the riddler here it is it's the most euphoric moment of your life realizing that christ has completely reorganized your entire story because now my kids want to replicate their childhood in their kids the last thing i wanted to give my kids was my childhood so it, it proved that because i had great mentors great people in my life so all that to say about the future Um, when you're able to cultivate a distraction-free life in leadership, your organization, your family, by introducing new new negativities. So people have screwed up businesses, companies, families, churches. And I tell them, listen, let's make this commitment. Uh, Let's make this commitment. Let's not pour anything new and negative into this relationship. 
um, and just let the natural healing process happen. There's a natural future inside every relationship. You just, you can't, you just got to stop sabotaging it uh, mm. with your words or with new negativities. No, that's really good. Well, you talked about in your book, one of your quotes was, never follow a leader. I can't find the quote here. Who wants to be famous? Who is it? Never follow a leader who wants to be famous? Yes, yes. Which kind of goes, because that that leader creates an environment and he distracts his followers because they are not free to function because their role is to serve him. When a a great leader... Yeah, it turns the person into a pawn. Yes. And so... I just, you're part of my, you're part of my audience. You're part of my following uh, that gives me false social media clout. Uh, I need someone to be speaking to, but I don't see you as a person. Don't slow my life down. Don't slow my success down with your problems. I just need you to sit here, be good, be a fan. And because I'm trying to be famous. And I know that's kind of brutal and sarcastic on my part, but I, at 57, I've just seen a lot of leaders treat their, people like pawns instead of people well we see that that's the temptation of a leader running a mega church right because they're on the platform they're writing the books you know they've got the gift shop with their books and that's a temptation of that leader so i I really appreciate what you said about your your past and we live in a real broken world and uh we've got brokenness all around us i believe desperately passionately believe that when a man gets it everyone wins however getting that man to get it is a journey for sure i love what you said in your book and you said focus on living not reliving reliving yes walk us through that it's been a very very powerful yes uh, um, concept in my life so there's a kind of a, a, a parallel quote that talks about if you think for too long about a missed opportunity chances are you'll miss the next one too (laughs) <laughs> and so I, I tell people, if you, have you ever totaled your car? You weren't totaled, but your car was totaled. They said, you know, they wait, raise their hand. I said, you get a call from the insurance company, go down to Floyd's wrecking yard and you go down there, they open up the chain link fence. You go in and you get to go up to your car. That's total. I said, what do you do when you get to the car? You reach inside the wreckage and you pull out what's valuable. You don't tie the wreckage to your leg and drag it around for the next six years of your life. You pull the wheel. Wisdom from the wreckage, but you leave the wreckage behind. Yes. Everybody has a few valuables inside the wreck, but you got to pull those out, take possession of the learning, uh, take possession of what helps you in the future, but you got to leave the bulk of the wreckage behind. So when we relive, constantly relive things, it's like tying the wreckage uh, to your leg instead of living, which does require learning. So you got to learn from the mistake. You got to pull out the wisdom from the wreckage, but you got to leave that that behind. You become regret, as you guys know, is or the biblical theology of regret is condemnation. Yeah, in which you simply lower your head, like Abram did after he failed in Genesis 13 with Lot, and he brought Lot. The Lord said, "Don't bring your nephew." He brings his nephew. There's quarrels, problems. He realizes it, so he separates from Lot, but his head is down. Mm. And the Lord says to Abram, "Look up. I want to write a book one day called Look Up." Ah. Because we we can be right with God, but living totally defeated. We can be looking straight down at the dirt when we have been uh, made right with the Lord. We're still not walking in faith and joy and in life. The Lord said, look up. So living to me is about looking up. Reliving is about constantly looking down uh, on the other side of the failure. 
That's so powerful. I, I love uh, my favorite Easter message to give is Mark 16, 7. Two words, and Peter. Jesus said, go and tell the disciples, and Peter. You know, in Romans 8, 1, for there is therefore no condemnation for yeah. those who are in Christ Jesus. And we just have to realize that in the midst of failure, we need to rebound. And so, hey, I want to come back in just a second. We're going to take a 30-second or short little uh, break here from our sponsor. We'll be right back at you. The Men in the Arena is a nonprofit organization with the mission to inspire men towards becoming their best version and changing their world. Every man in the arena matters. Our Men in the Arena closed Facebook forum for men is a great way to dialogue about manhood with men from around the world. There we have lively discussions on every topic of manhood imaginable. Join that group today. Because of the passion to see men get out of the bleachers and into the arena, Jim wants to offer some powerful resources to all men who visit our website at meninthearena.org. Give us your email and we'll send you a free PDF version of the field guide. It's Jim's 365-day bathroom book for men. It's the study of manly words in the Bible, illustrated with great stories. This is also a great resource for all our arena men. We'll also add you to our weekly equipping blast, including Jim's personal blog, prayer requests, and weekly boots on the ground mission. Men, the stakes are high. The pressure is on. Do you hear the roars of those you love and those anonymous voices in the bleachers pleading for you to enter the fight? Because when you get it, everyone wins. Now, back to our episode. So here we are. We just kind of ca- crossed our halftime uh, point of the podcast. So I want to stop and just ask you this question, Scott. What exactly is this book for? How do you take a book like this and use it uh, in your business, in your church, in your family, in your guys group? Now, I know the answer because it's on the second page of the book. But why don't you walk me through this? How can our guys take your book and use it? Well, first of all, th- thanks so much for allowing me just to be on the podcast. Yeah. You guys, this is fun. I hope we can do, do it again. For sure. Um, first of all, because the book happened by accident, not strategy, um, it's all a surprise to me where it's finding its way. I was just sharing with you during the break that uh, one of the colonels at the Pentagon sent me a photo. There's 30 people at the Pentagon that meet weekly for what they call a leadership circle. And each of the guys has the book. There's 316 uh, discussion starters on leadership uh, in the book. And so they'll say, hey, we're going to discuss uh, quotes one through 10, pick one, and then just share with the group why. And it just starts a great conversation. Um, it really has flipped uh, the idea of power uh, on its head. I didn't like the title when the New York publisher got it. He changed the name and added personal power. And I didn't like it. But he said, you have redefined how power works, how to apply power in this day and age of, of um, that we live in. And so it's a great book for personal growth. You just get it. You read through it. Uh, it's a great book for if you lead teams, if you're on a team, uh, give it to influential people. Give it to your bosses, your board members. Um, one businessman has given this to every police officer in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hmm. Another guy has given it to all the school teachers in the Portland, Oregon area. Your wow. area. And churches are giving it and business leaders are giving it out um, as gifts to the corporate world. So it's made it to the boardrooms, Apple Computer, Warren Buffett's uh, energy company, the New York Yankees. It just made it to a lot of different spaces. Lots of college football teams have used it, chaplains. So it's for personal leadership growth. And if you lead teams, and if you're a Christian and you're looking for a tool to give to a non-Christian, I I often ask guys when I speak at conferences, I said, listen, how many of you guys work in a tough place? Most of the guys lift their hand. And I said, how many of you actually work for the Antichrist? The Antichrist is your boss. (laughs) And uh, of course, 
everybody lifts their hand. And of course, if the boss is there, it's, it's, it's double funny. But I said, this is the book that you give uh, to somebody who is anti-God. Uh, and I promise you, they're going to they're gonna invite you back. Uh, you're going to bring value to their life. And it, it's a conduit for those who want to explore more like, hey, where's this all coming from? But it's written in a way that uh, non-believers, people outside the church are using it like crazy. Uh, but it's also great for board members and churches to use. Lots of ways to use it. Well, and when I read the book, I knew you were a follower of Jesus, but you wouldn't know it from the book. It was great quotes that were non-intimidating. Not, they wouldn't be controversial if you were in a secular workplace. I really did appreciate it. Hey, I want to get back into this uh, leader versus leader and kind of this paradoxical look at leadership. Uh, you have a quote in your book that I, I really, really appreciate this quote because I think a lot of times we get locked in this caricature as a leader versus character as a leader. And when we do that, we resort to tactics and recipes. And there are certain recipes out there that if you follow them, you will achieve success. Uh, I don't think it's authentic. But you, sa- you, you uh, said your behaviors are your brand. And then all- elsewhere in the book, you talked about gimmick versus game plan. Can you talk us through that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it really, I would, a way I would frame it even further is, um, again, we're always looking for the, the, the tricks of the trade before we master the tools of the uh-huh. trade. Yeah. And again, because this generation believes that shortcuts are an act, are an act of brilliance, mm-hmm. we really do have a paradigm problem between search and research going on between depth and, and breadth. And yes. And, and so, so what's happening is this generation, because of technology, are able to discover formulas instead of build habits. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, but at the end of the day, what people are inspired by is not formulas. They're inspired by lifestyles. And so leadership is not about production. It's about reproduction. And so people lean into people that they believe have legitimacy in uh, outside the spotlight. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I teach often when Jesus <clears throat> went into the wilderness and it goes along with this whole idea of character, caricature, formula versus habits. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan in, in Matthew chapter three, and then in Matthew four, he's driven into the wilderness um, to be tempted uh, those 40 days and he defeats three temptations. Um, I wrote in my journal a few years ago. It's interesting that Jesus, he understood the premise of all leadership is that you have to defeat the devil privately before you defeat him publicly. Oh, you wow. Have, you have to defeat Satan personally before you defeat him professionally. So at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he defeated Satan privately. He then was rewarded with the privilege of defeating him on Calvary or publicly. And so we have to teach people how to... Uh, order their life, their private world, the famous Gordon McDonald uh, yep. uh, proposition that was so good. But it, it comes through habits. It doesn't come through tactics. It doesn't come through formula. That's why you got to always take a deep breath with young leaders. You know, my son just planted a church in, in Oakland, California. And I said, son, <clears throat> if somebody asks you how the church is doing, say this. I don't know. Check back in 10 years. I'll tell you. <laughs> Because we're living with this 10-minute ticker, like a stock ticker, um, the news cycle, and it is it is dismantling the capacity for young leaders to stay focused long enough to discover habits of meaning, 
And so they are defaulting to formulas and a quick fix. And then they wonder why no one's inspired of their life. No one's trying to replicate their life after, after them. Um, you know, it takes a long time. I was going to share this just real quick earlier. Uh, I want to make sure that this gets kind of put into the podcast is when I deal with young, young people who are about to be married, deal with young men, let's say I got a 25 year old kid who's going to get married and he comes from a tough family. I say, Hey, what's your vision for being a husband? And he starts telling me all the things he wants to do that his father never did. So his vision is not to be something. Mm-hmm. Now, now the vision not to be, it's pretty compelling, but it can take you to about age 30. Then the adrenaline to not be your father, it runs out. At some point, the vision not to be something has to be replaced by the vision of what to become. Yes. So unless you have a vision of what to become, you're not going to make it past your late 20s, early 30s. That adrenaline runs out. I just, I'm just not going to yell at my wife because my dad yelled at mom. So you got to help young men see the future by giving them a vision of what to become, not simply a vision of what not, you know, not being your father is not a vision. Correct. Um, so as we work with students and young leaders and young entrepreneurs on how to see the future, do they have a clear picture of what to become or are they simply trying not to be something negative or to avoid failure? And it takes habits. Formulas can't break that cycle. Well, you've, you've said a whole lot there. There's a lot to unpack, but I want to go back to that. In your book, you said whatever, and I put in parentheses in my book, whoever, whatever you can't talk about owns you. Owns you. So whatever you can't deal with publicly owns you privately. But then you said something in your book, and I, I was troubled by this, and I wrote in my book uh, next to the quote, I thought, how do I know this is happening to me? And here's the quote. You said the problem, and you talked about this man who just doesn't want to be like his dad. At age 30, the adrenaline wears off. In your book, you have this powerful, powerful quote. Maybe one of the most powerful quotes for me personally. You said the problem, because in the last six months, I've seen six Christian leaders fall miserably to moral failure. Some are in jail because of it. And you said the problem with a bad foundation is that it takes years to discover. And I wrote in my book, how do I know if my foundation is bad or good? I'm 54, so I'm on the other side at halftime, right? But how do I know? Satan is a patient predator. I mean, that's the strength of a predator is his patience and his concealment. So how does a man know if his foundation is indeed cracked or lacking or tilted? How do we work through that there, Scott? Let's first talk about the process of what I call the flaw, the fundamental flaw, or the fatal flaw okay. that is in a leader. And then I want to talk real quickly about how to help a man headed into the abyss. Mm. <laughs> you know, that realization, I'm 60 years old, 70 years old. Yeah. I just threw away the one life I had. I'm going off into the abyss. How do we help that guy? But let's talk about the flaws. First of all, everybody that we, we know, you, me, we all have flaws. Yes. We have embedded, We have embedded deficiencies that are God-given. Um, that are there, and no matter how much education, how how much gifts, how much experiences, the embedded flaw is designed almost like a puzzle with the part of the puzzle piece that is the vacant in part Uh that requires the presence of the other piece of the puzzle to fill the vacancy. I have some God-given vacancies that need you in my life. So, But oftentimes, we're afraid when we're young of our flaws. We're insecure. We feel inadequate. 
My wife has a small birthmark on her left cheek. It's the first thing I noticed about her when I met her uh, 38 years ago was her I thought it was cute. I saw a beauty mark. She saw a birthmark. Ah. Somebody made made fun of that when she was young. And she had a very difficult time being at ease and being whimsical about that flaw. She grew into that ease and became whimsical. We have to learn to laugh at ourselves. I have flaws. I can't be defensive and angry about my embedded deficiencies. Because if I do, then I go to the next stage, which I call the fundamental flaw. Fundamental flaw shows up in the middle part of your life. It's a behavior that can be transformed. I can't eradicate a flaw, but I can eradicate a fundamental flaw, which is a behavior. It's not costing my, me my career. It's only costing me my potential. Ooh. I, get to, I get to keep my job because I still bring more contribution than deficit. People overlook my fundamental flaw for a period of time in my life. But the problem is, most leaders never enter that space, uh, Dale and Jim, because it requires a feedback loop and you have to welcome someone into the space with this question. What do you see in my life that's keeping me from reaching my potential? Oh. And then then they're going to lie to you for 20 minutes because they don't believe you really want to know. And then if you get them to relax and tell you, so most men have the bad foundation because they were never at ease with their embedded flaw, their embedded deficiency. They've rejected feedback loops in the middle part of their life um, going into that space. The space is not the space between me and you. The gap in my life is the gap between who I am currently and the potential for who I can become. It's not the gap between your success and my success that I'm comparing the wrong thing. I need feedback from trusted voices into the space, but they cannot get there unless I welcome them in. And then what happens if you're if you're embarrassed of your flaws and you have no feedback loops with your fundamental flaws, you enter life, phase, the phase of the fatal flaw. The fatal flaw is brutal. It's usually in your 50s, yeah. 60s, or 70s. People don't want to be around you anymore. And it's because they're sick and tired of you. You have carried this thing in your life for so long and now your contribution is waning, your deficit is glaring, and people are sick of you. They don't want to ride the elevator with you anymore. So the fatal flaw is the behavior that costs you everything. Now, it it emerges slowly but arrives with a vengeance, usually when you're in your 60s. Now you're alone. People don't want to be around you. And you got to help men early on be at ease with their flaws and get feedback loops into their fundamental flaws, closing that gap. I know that's a long answer. I apologize. No, it's not. It's great because what I have found, Scott, and I know you found this too, <laughs> you know, we get these guys through the stress bubble, right? They raise, they, they fight for their kids. They fight for their marriage. They're out of the stress bubble. Uh, the kids are left, have left the home. They've got respect. They're in their late fifties, early sixties and crash, boom, bang, their world falls apart. Massive moral failure, disaster. And we look back and we go, what happened? The fatal flaw had its way. And that's the scary part. And you, you said this, the irony, this is in your book, the irony of masks is that we wear them to appear strong, yet people are drawn to us when we take them off. And I, I love what you're saying. And when we got you on the show, I instantly fell in love with you because I could tell you're a guy who celebrates your flaws so you can celebrate the strength in others as they help you. When your phone died, you didn't fix it. You brought that unknown admin uh, admin uh, officer who saved your life, right? And so you can celebrate yep. that in her. And so, man, hey, Scott, this book has been a wonderful read. I highly recommend our people to pick it up. Where can they get this book? 
just go bookstores or just go on Amazon or, or Barnes and Noble. Language of Influence and Personal Power. You might see the first version called the Language of Influence. Get the second version out there, the updated one that was just released, better graphics. It's called the Language of Influence and Personal Power. I love the graphics. As a man, I love to see the quote and have a graphic behind it. Really appreciate that. Hey, Scott, uh, thanks so much for coming on our show, taking time to share your wisdom and your expertise. Hey, guys, let's get our boots on the ground. What's the next step? What can we do because of what we heard today? How will you become a better version because of this podcast? And here, here's what I here's what here's the first thing that came to my mind. I want you to go onto Facebook like I did two days ago. Just type in note the number two leaders. Note to leaders. That's Scott's page and like it. And he will uh, begin to equip you with that page with the things you need to be your best version. So check that out, guys. You will not be disappointed. We'll also post our boots on the ground moment in our equipping glass. It goes out to thousands of guys around the world. And you can get that free when you sign up on our website to get my bathroom book for men. We'll also include you in the equipping blast. And so guys, hey, we are a nonprofit crowdfunded organization that strategically does that so that we can get people like you on our team and we can give our free re our resources free to missionaries, men in underdeveloped nations, and our guys in active military. Until next time, feel the wet sand of the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out. And be a man. Men in the arena. If you hunger to be your best version, join us along with thousands of men from around the world. Check out our Men in the Arena forums. You can join on Facebook or on our website at meninthearena.org. While you're on our website, remember to pick up your free electronic version of Jim's bathroom book for men, The Field Guide. It's a daily study of manly words with epic stories in the Bible. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. Remember, when a man gets it, everyone wins. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.